thank you for remaining standing while we read from the Word. We have two passages, Matthew 11, 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And then Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world forfeits his soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Dear Lord, we come before you, Lord, looking at these passages and looking at the condition of our souls, and we seek your word for our lives today. Lord, that all that may have come before leading to this moment be put aside as we open our hearts for you to speak to us, for you to encounter us, for your word to shine through. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. <coughs> for those of you who may not have met me, my name is Oscar Medina. I'm one of the elders around here. And it's my, uh, my joy to, uh, to be able to, uh, to be here this morning. Unfortunately, I can't say if I bomb, it's because I didn't have a sufficient notice. <laughs> it's not like Ben just called me early this morning and said, hey, get something together. <laughs> uh, so I can't take that as an excuse. <laughs> My kids, when, uh, when they were younger, used to do this thing where I'd, I'd come home or maybe I'm walking around and suddenly there would be a suitcase in a very conspicuous place on the floor. And they were ready for the game. And you could probably guess what the game was. They were hiding inside the suitcase. So I, I would say out loud, I wonder how this got here. And then I would pick it up and I would swing it around in a circle and, and I'd flip it and, and I'd bump it into furniture and on the stairwell. And, 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 then finally, and the whole time you could hear muffled giggling, you know. And sometimes they were really creative and like two of them got into one suitcase together, you know. And sometimes it was like little tiny suitcases that I don't know how they bent their bodies to, to be able to get in there. And uh, there was one time, uh, I don't know how it happened because no serious parent would ever do that, but somehow the suitcase ended up sliding down the stairs. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. <laughs> and then there was the time where I was going on a trip and my kids were a little bit bigger. And when I went to pack, my suitcase was already on the bed. And uh, I opened it. And, and uh, my youngest, Elijah, was 
was squeezed inside the suitcase. Marek, I don't know how he did it. And, uh, but he wasn't giggling. And I could tell that it, he didn't want me to leave. And so I, I said, you want to come with me? And he said, uh-huh. And so I, I had a bundle of shirts. I put up, I kind of like stuffed them in where he was, and I closed the lid. And I sat down next to the suitcase with the lid closed. And we talked for a bit. We talked about how sometimes it's scary to be you know, separated from loved ones. And, um, and then eventually he opened the lid and he got out and he sat on my lap. And, and we talked. We talked about being afraid and about the fear of being left alone. And, uh, and I, I hope he found peace because I, I, did, I didn't take him on a trip. <laughs> so. But you know, as we embark on a new year, uh, towards the close of last year, the elders, Pastor Ben, we always have a retreat. This year, we kind of did did it in a in a kind of creative way because of you know all the COVID risks. And part of what we do during this retreat is talk about how we see God speaking to our church in the coming year. And one of the things that we felt clearly as a priority, and Ben will be talking more about this next week, is is the need for caring of the soul. And so we're starting off this year really with a series that I'm introducing today, and Ben will, will follow up in the next couple of weeks, about the care of the soul. And, and really, to, to start it all up, I, I thought it's important that we think about the baggage that we carry throughout the year and in our lives that weighs us down, that fills us with burden. So I want to talk about three kinds of baggage this morning. The first kind of baggage that I want to talk about is the baggage that we carry that we don't need to carry. Baggage we carry that we don't need to carry. So we read this morning a famous passage, a passage well-loved, well-known by many people, a passage that, that brings comfort and peace to people who don't even understand really what it's talking about at its heart. Because you see, the thing is that if you truly understand this passage, it's the heart of Christianity. Uh, really, it defines who Jesus is. Because in this passage, he's talking about rest for the soul, but he's talking about deep inward rest. And he's making it clear that we desperately need this. Now, who's he talking to? Some might say, you know, in the context that he might have been talking to a select number of people. But if, if you think about, um, about what this means and how it impacts our lives, you realize he's talking to all of us. You know, uh, young people often, they think about, well, if I can get my stuff together and, you know, the, the really important things, like, you know, uh, get my professional career going so I have professional success. Well, if I have that and, and I have uh, a romantic success, uh, a loved one, that, a partner that, that I'm with for all my life, and so I have, if I have professional success and I have romantic success and, and, yeah, and I make a social impact, I change the world so much, if I have all of that, then I'll be at rest. But you know, as you get a little bit older, you realize that even when you have some inkling of that, yeah. there's a part of you that isn't at rest. Yeah. Sometimes it's not at rest because you're wondering when it's going to go away. So, sometimes you're, you're not at rest, even though you may have achieved so many wonderful things because you, you think about what might happen to take this away from you. It's, it's not possible 
to, to find contentment with these things. It's not possible to find security, to find peace. It's a lie that our culture tells us because so often those things are taken away. C.S. Lewis famously said, I think I've quoted it before, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You see, Jesus knew about the burdens that we carry. Actually, in this same book, later on in, in Matthew uh, chapter 23, he's speaking about it. In verse 4, he says, talking about Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And yet they themselves can't live to that standard. Jesus knew all about the problem of carrying burdens. And so, so often we live with those burdens ourselves. You might say, well, Oscar, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm not Jewish. I, I don't follow the Mosaic law. I don't have those kind of burdens on me. And maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe you're not concerned about, uh, about tithing, and maybe you're not concerned about following all these regulations about food laws and dietary restriction and, and all the different festivals you need to participate in. But often there are inner mechanisms of self-reproach that we just can't turn off. Often we live under the constraint of, of wanting somehow to satisfy the expectations of others. Sometimes it's our parents. Even if our parents are gone, sometimes we still live with that inner mechanism saying, you're not good enough, you're not loved, you're not well-regarded, you're not successful, and we hear those voices, and it may be from a, a bad relationship with our parents, it may be with a bad relationship to others in our lives, our partners, even our children, co-workers, other voices that we hear, and it's so hard to turn off that noise, to find true rest, to turn off that inner mechanism. And Jesus is saying, only I can give it to you. You know, medical professionals talk about sleep, and they talk about REM sleep. You're familiar with this? Rapid eye movement. And, you know, so as you sleep, your body goes through different phases, and there's one very important phase called REM, which is the deepest sleep, and that's the point where your body truly releases its rest. It's like parts of your, of your uh, conscious actually change and shift. They've measured all this, and REM sleep is really only a portion of the whole time that you're sleeping, but it's the most important time. If you're woken during that time, you end up waking up later on, not fully rested. Jesus is talking about REM for the soul. He's talking about that deep rest that truly lifts your burdens. So how does he do that? Probably one of the most outrageous statements that you see in Scripture. How can you find rest? He says, take my yoke. It really seems outrageous, doesn't it? It seems counterintuitive. Yeah. To be released from burden by taking out a burden. You've seen, I mean, I grew up in, you know, inner city, across the river from New York City. I'd never seen a yoke in my life until I went out to college, right? Some of you maybe living in Polk County have. But, you know, this thing, you, you put it on horses or you put it on cattle, usually oxen. It's big, it's heavy, solid, made of wood. But, you know, the thing is that the thing about the yoke is not the yoke itself. The thing is that the yoke is always tied to something. It's not the yoke itself. It may be heavy, but for an oxen, it's nothing. 
but it's what it's tied to that really ties you down. And, you know, our culture, when we hear that Jesus is inviting us to take his yoke, we, we rebel against that. Because we live in a culture that self-mastery is all. We call it freedom. We care so much about freedom, and yes, I agree with political freedom, but spiritual freedom is a myth, is a fantasy. And we care so much not to have other voices and other things leading our lives that we fool ourselves in thinking that it's somehow counterproductive to take on the yoke of Christ. And the problem is that when we read this passage, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong word. We, we, we hear, take my yoke upon you, when really what we should be hearing is take my yoke. Because the distinction here is that you already have a yoke. You're already carrying one around. You're already tied down by things in your life. And Jesus is saying, let it down. Take my yoke and find freedom. Some of us are are yoked to our life partner. And we need that so desperately that we can't afford conflict. We can't afford conversations that might be painful. So we live in a deadened life, insatisfied. Some of us live for our children. And sometimes one of two things happen. is one, either our children live pushing us back because they, they feel like we're smothering them, or sometimes, even worse, they stop because we've already smothered them, trying to live our lives through them. Some people live for their work. And the problem there is then the measure of your worth is determined by your success and by the things you do. Some people live for church. They say, I'm going to revolutionize my life and be good and live our lives trying to be good. And one of two things happen. Either we succeed and then we end up being a self-righteous bigot who everyone despises and probably rightly so. Or we end up hating ourselves because we fail. So hard to carry those burdens we drag behind us. There's a movie that really impressed me. Uh, 1986, yes, I saw it in theater. <laughs> um, it was called The Mission. It was starring Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro and Liam Neeson. And, and so the, the movie uh, takes part in 1750s um, of South America. And the context is that the Portuguese had many missions among the Guarani Indians. Uh, and, and through some political schemery and for politics and, and capital gain, they had made a deal with Spain that were giving up some of those missions to the Spanish, Spaniards. And there was a lot of turmoil because of that. Robert De Niro's character, Don Pedro, is a slaver. And he would go in the forest and he would capture Guarani natives and would sell them as slaves to the, to the Spanish. He was Portuguese, but you know, again, because of that transfer. And one day after a particularly violent trip where many are killed, he gets back home to his home and he goes into his bedroom and he sees his wife in bed with his brother. He challenges his brother to a duel later on, even though his wife begs for him not to do it. They duel, he ends up killing his brother. And now he's racked in guilt. 
And he goes to a priest, ends up being the priest that would travel to the Guarani, and the priest tells him to find freedom from your guilt. Your penance must be that you take all of your armor and wrap it up in a, in a, in a ball of rope and drag it behind you as we travel to, to visit the Guarani who you have been enslaving. So they partake of dozens of miles journey through the jungle where Robert De Niro's character is dragging on a rope over 100 pounds of armor that's all balled up. And you see all these scenes where they're climbing up uh, mountains and hills. The, the Iguasi Falls, where this takes place, is on the border between Argentina and Brazil, is three times higher than the Niagara Falls. And so he's climbing up these falls, and at different times, he gets stuck, and the, and, and the ball of armor falls all the way down, and he, he climbs back down. And all the priests that are on this pilgrimage are watching, and, and they come together to the senior priest and says, hasn't he carried it long enough? Free him. And he says, regardless of what I think, he doesn't think he's carried it far enough. So he keeps on dragging it and dragging it. Eventually, they get to the, 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 uh, the community of the Guarani. And as they're there, and he, all the priests arrive, and there's hugs and kisses because these were believers, members of the Catholic community that the priest had set up. And then some moments later, Robert De Niro's character clears the edge, the lip of the mountain, and drags his, his armor up, and everybody is quiet because they recognize him. And one of the Guarani grabs a blade from one of the priests and runs towards him and grabs him by the hair and holds the knife to his neck. And De Niro's character does nothing. It's Meisner. And there's silence. And, and the, uh, the native is looking at his chief for permission. And the chief whispers to the priest, why is he carrying that in his language? The priest responds, it's his penance. The chief makes a signal to the native, and he takes the blade, and he rips the rope. And he pushes the armor off the mountain. And the Nero falls weeping. And as he's weeping, the Guarani start to surround him, and they grab him by the beard and look in his face. And then they start laughing. They start hugging him. And then the Nero's tears turn into laughter. It's a moving scene. And it's moving because I think we can all empathize with the burden of carrying weight that we don't need to. The burden of living our lives with this feeling of guilt and, and pain that we drag through life that Jesus is willing to free us of if only we'd let him. Your only hope is to be yoked to me, he says. Because if you fail me, I'll forgive you. Let him be Lord. You know, sometimes it can seem scary because there's a second kind of baggage. There's a baggage that we don't even need to carry, and then there's the baggage that just seems too big to carry. We read the second passage in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, just before these words about taking up your cross, Jesus utters probably the most vehement 
accusation that he had done to anybody. I mean, we, we've seen how he would speak to, uh, to, to prostitutes and to sinners and to tax collectors and, and how his voice was filled with tenderness and love and understanding. And, and we would see him sometimes speak to Pharisees and would call them hypocrites to their face and would say, woe upon you. But we've never seen him tell anybody, get behind me, you are Satan. I mean, that was, that was as strong as Jesus had ever done. And to really understand, um, prior to this text, just above where Jesus tells uh, Simon that, uh, Simon Peter, and he does that because he's telling him, I'm about to suffer. I'm about to die. I'm about to go through so much pain. And Peter says, no, never you. And Jesus tells him, get behind me. Because just a few verses prior to that, Simon had made a confession that was landmark. Simon said, yeah, you know, some people look at you as a prophet, but you're more than a prophet. And some people look at you as a teacher, but you're more than a teacher. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He had, out of his heart, out of his experience, out of knowing and seeing Jesus, he had come to that conclusion. And now, a few moments later, He's totally misunderstanding what Jesus was about. You know, something so often, and it's really a sign of immaturity in our faith, of people who look to Jesus and think of him as dessert. Or people that think of Jesus and say that Jesus died so that bad things will never happen to me. Or some people, Jesus dies so that I won't do bad things. And are really totally missing the point of Jesus' presence in our life. Because some people agree with Peter. Oh no, Jesus, you're too good for those bad things to happen. Or, or some people uh, kind of uh, take Jesus' words about taking up the cross to mean that we have to sacrifice. That we have to bloody ourselves or beat ourselves up. Really, Jesus explains it all. <clears throat> in the following verses. And actually, it's very interesting that uh, in verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then the following verse, uh, the, the word in Greek is psyche, which is the word that psychology comes from, P-S-Y-C-H-E. It's interesting that that word is used in those two verses four times. Two times it's translated as life, and two times it's translated as soul. Yeah, where, where it says you lose your life or find your life, then later what will you give, uh, forfeit your soul or, or give in return for your soul? It's the same Greek word. And it's the idea of your inner identity, who you are. And you know, the wonderful thing is you have this Hebrew poetry that's going on here that uh, you've seen it before in the Psalms, the contrast where it says the one side and then it says the other side. And so it's, it's saying wh whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will... Wait, it doesn't say save, does it? It says find. And we believe that's intentional because what Jesus is really saying at its core is stop trying to save yourself. Yeah. You can't. You can't save yourself. 
Stop trying to save yourselves. And, and we try so often, and, and sometimes even take this, these words about taking up the cross as a method of saving ourselves. And what burdens we can take in our life to save ourselves. You know, the uh, Catholic Church and really some other denominations have this whole theology of mortification of the flesh. Have you heard of that? Mortification means to deaden the flesh or to make it your slave or to try to kill it. And, and they base that theology on a couple of passages, including this one about taking up the cross, but also uh, Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Uh, and so they, they use those verses to justify this idea that you have to punish your body. There's a whole branch of religiosity that does this. Uh, starting in the year 1000, St. Dominic went through this period of six days where he lashed himself, and it's written, it's documented. He lashed himself 300,000 times. St. Francis of Assisi took upon himself the stigmata. The stigmata are the marks of the death of Jesus. So hands and feet and, and on his side. Uh, he also called his body, he would talk to, about his body, called it brother butt, except he didn't use the word butt. He used another word that's a little inappropriate today. <laughs> and he wore a hair shirt at all times. A hair shirt is just another word for sackcloth, you know, just rough. And so instead of a nice, you know, inner T-shirt, you know, that was nice and comfortable, it, it, it's not like it would cause him to bleed, but be in a constant state of discomfort. Mother Teresa herself was known to wear a hair, uh, a hair shirt. And then, you know, other great saints that are well-regarded, that universities were built after them, the statues and so forth, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Junipero Serra, all practiced severe mortification. These people were canonized by the Catholic Church and set up as examples of devoted godly lives that achieved some form of spiritual perfection because of how they treated their bodies. In Italy, there are processions that are led even today that have you know, the, a crucifix or some statue where leading them are beaters. And these beaters carry what are called spugnas, which are like circular corks that have nails in them so that only the points of the nails show out. So the cork keeps it from going too deep, but they, they're bare-chested and they just go beating their bodies. And so it doesn't go deep, but it's enough to do pinpricks and, and bring out the flow of blood, of blood. In Mexico, every year there's a pilgrimage to, uh, to, to the Basilica of uh, La Virgen de la Guadalupe that millions of people literally walk on their knees up this steep hill to get to this basilica and arrive with bloody knees. And part of the trip is just uh, uh, hundreds of stairs to get up to uh, the basilica. They do all in an attempt to somehow save themselves. Now, probably most of us don't struggle with that form of self-salvation. And I don't think Jesus was directly speaking to that. But he, I think he is speaking to one way that we try to save ourselves when he says, 
what will it profit if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Now, yeah, I, I admit that there are probably people that have naked ambition and literally want to get the whole world, but I don't think Jesus is talking about that here. I think he's talking about those that do that in an attempt to save themselves. And, you know, really, it's kind of an occupational hazard for Jesus' followers. Because we look at Scripture and we see the things that he did, the mighty works, just between the two passages that we've read in chapter 16 and chapter 11 and chapter 14 is the miracle of the feeding of the multitude. And we get to that passage and, and we're just so drawn in by, by the great work that he did and, and the miracle of feeding and, and using just a few loaves and fishes and, and the meaning behind all that. So often we miss the verse just before and the verse just after. Both of those really sandwiching that whole experience of the feeding of the multitude in Matthew 14, and yes, that was kind of a pun, is, is a simple verse that says that Jesus went off by himself to pray. We seem to ignore that. You know, I spent, honestly, years of my life sacrificing my wife and children in my efforts to win the world. Eventually, God said, you know, you're not getting this right. You're not finding the balance. It's time you move on to something else. You know, I have to admit that, that not all my motivations were good. There was a part of me that was seeking grandioseness. But God made it clear to me that my soul mattered more to him than my external success or the way I, I wanted to be seen in the way I thought I needed to be seen. See, the key to taking up the cross is what he says just before, denying yourself. It's not that we are unimportant, but that Christ is more. It's not that, that our cross and our burdens don't matter to, to Jesus. They do, but his cross matters so much more. It's not that our mission isn't of value and, and doesn't matter to God, but that his mission is above all and is all. And that's what he calls us to. Our souls are really only secure when they're in his hands because, you see, our souls were built for his hands. So we talked about the baggage that we carry, which you don't need to. We talked about the baggage it seems too big to carry that we try to. There's a third kind, and that's the baggage that is carried for us. See, in this passage back in Matthew 11, we get this melt-in-your-mouth sweetness of Jesus that's calling us towards him. As I said before, some people just come to Jesus for, for dessert, for churchianity, for the big event, for the glitter and the lights and and, and the emotional feel of it all. And that's all we want. And you know, I, I know that many in this church have come here because we've been wounded by churchianity, because we're, we're kind of done with it. We want, we want the real Jesus. And if you can understand these words of Jesus, you really get to the heart of what Christianity is. So, so how do we get it? Well, 
Jesus gave a clue. Just above uh, in the, where, where he says that, he says, all things, I'm sorry, um, in verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And then later in Matthew 18, uh, a lot of what I'm saying today is out of Matthew. Matthew 18, he, he says the same thing. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, really Jesus, he, he talks about being born again, and he talks about being repented and coming to Christ, and he talks about being like little children, all as equivalents. It's all metaphors for the same thing. You know, it's been a while since I've had little ones. I told you a story but, uh, earlier on, but it, it's been a while. I don't have grandkids yet, and uh, all in due time. I'm not in a rush. <laughs> but but I, I think I have a, a lot of uh, adopted grandkids, you know, uh, kids that, that, uh, that we've loved, that have had children of their own, and that we relate to. And, and I'm remembered often what it's like to have children in the home. There's a lot of things we could talk about what it's like to have children in the home, but there's Two things particularly that I think really relate to what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, the first thing about kids is that they know they're helpless. They know they're helpless. So one of the first things they learn, now in a Spanish ho- household, I don't know why this is, I, I don't know the etymology of the word, but upa, which, you know, it's kind of like what a parent says when they, upa, they pick up the kid and you know, it's like a little sign you make. In English, it's just up, right? Up, up, up. But it's, you know, in Spanish, my, you know, my, we would say, upa. And so the kids, when they wanted to be raised up, they'd come up to you and say, upa. they raise their hands up, upa. And they're not ashamed or embarrassed. They got no problem knowing that, uh, that they're helpless. There's no desire to prove that they're tough. They, they know what it's, what it's all about. If uh, they're tired, you know, we're walking a long way, oopa, papi, oopa. Or, or maybe they feel threatened because there's too many strangers around. I mean, Doritha used to, like, climb up my clothes, literally, you know, if I wasn't quick enough to, to pick her up. Or if they're bored, oopa. Or if they're cold, <laughs> oopa, papi. Or if they just want to see what's coming ahead, Oopa, poppy, and then not only, then they try to climb up and stand on my head, right? They're not afraid to show that they are helpless. And we need to know that uh, we're saved by grace alone. We can't help ourselves, we can't reform ourselves. Even the good things we do are often done for bad reasons. Now, there's a second thing about kids. They're not afraid to show they're helpless. And the second thing is that they're confident you love them, at least until they become teenagers, right? They're, they're confident that you love them. So even when they misbehave, they say, oopa, puppy. Even when they've totally ruined an evening with your good friends by misbehaving, even when their bodies are oozing out all this stuff, <laughs> they come to you and they say, oopa, puppy and they know that you will. You know, plenty of people get halfway. Plenty of people get to the point where they acknowledge, yeah, I'm, I'm messed up. I messed up my life. I can't make it on my own. I need help. Plenty of people get that far. But to get to the other part, 
where even when you're in a mess, you're confident that Jesus loves you. You rest in his love. Yeah, we have trouble with that. Jesus helps us out because he says, I am gentle and humble. I mean, look at him at the cross. Throughout history, all kinds of Christians have died in horrible ways. Yet all of them had something that Jesus didn't have. All of them went to their death, sometimes happily, sometimes not. But all went with peace because they knew God was with them. Jesus went to his death and he felt alone and he said, Abba, Father. He went alone because he took our restlessness upon him. He took our sins upon him. He took our guilt upon him. He took all of that upon him so that he could turn around and give it back as a gift. He's the only one that won't abuse. Just look what he did for us. Lay down the burden. Lay down the doing. Lay down the efforts of making it on your own. Trust in Jesus only for the surety of your soul. Follow him. Learn from him. In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you speak to our lives and how you constantly teach us. Lord, we trust that your word will come and speak in powerful ways and yet in gentle and humble and loving ways to woo us to you, help us understand our need, and help us understand your great love that stands at the ready. We turn to you, Lord, to open our hearts and our our minds for your spirit and for your grace. In Jesus' name.